We're going to pray, and then we'll read uh, part of Hebrews 9. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you uh, for your word. Uh, Lord, as we just sang, we ask that your spirit would be amongst us, that your spirit would illuminate the, the meaning of this text that we have before us. We ask that uh, we would hear your voice uh, through these words. We ask that you would guide us. We ask that you would speak into the lives of each one of us uh, that, that is here. Uh, we, we each come from various places and backgrounds, and we're in different places in our uh, journey with you. And so we ask that you would... Um, that you would sort of speak to each one of us uh, where we are, whether it's for salvation, whether it's uh, for growth, encouragement. Um, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our midst uh, through your word. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, the regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if by the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you will guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. 
Amen. I, uh, I wasn't intending it to be a, 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 an actual question. I mean, it's a question. I wasn't looking for a raising of hands. It, it ended up during the last service, people sort of did raise their hands. Um, you don't have to raise your hand. I certainly am raising my own hand. Uh, but the question is sort of how many of you suffer from a sensitive conscience? I have a, <laughs> Alberto, both hands up. People normally with a sensitive conscience, they look down. It's, I mean, uh, my conscience from an early age has been really sensitive to certain things. By, by, by no stretch of the imagination am I saying that I was perfect. You don't need to search my body that far to find imperfections uh, from self-inflicted wounds that I have done. And, and, uh, but, but there was always something within me, a, uh, a, a guilty conscience of things. I remember as a young, young boy, uh, things like going to the store and, 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 and paying for something, like handing the cashier $5. And they would give me back change for a 20, and, and almost instantly I'd be like, I only gave you a five, and I'd give back all the change. And then I'd go, ah, what was I thinking? I could have made some money by being, buying that Snickers bar. And I'd beat myself up that my, the sensitivity to some things. Um, there's nothing quite like being zapped by your conscience. In fact, you're not alone. In fact, this week in my studying, I discovered that there is a fund at the federal government called the Conscience Fund. Has anybody heard of this? It's a, t- it's a true story verified by Wikipedia and other sources. Uh, it was created in 1811. It was started with a, a, a $5 gift, or the gift, I should say, a $5 payment for something that I'm not sure of. Um, it started with $5 over 175 years. It's, it's collected five point. Seven million dollars. Uh, reasons that people send in money to this uh, conscience fund. Um, one instant was a lady sent a check for nine cents because she had reused a three cent stamp and 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 using it twice. Her conscience so troubled her that she had to pay back the government. There was another individual, it was reported, that um, stole $40,000. He lived in New Jersey, so we kind of expect that from New Jersey. Um, (laughs) But his conscience so bothered him that over the course of a number of years, he anonymously paid back the money that he had stolen over the course of his life. Um, There's reports of of a World War II veteran on his deathbed writing a check to the government for $100 because he needed to relieve his conscience before he met his maker. And so he sent $100 because he said during the war, uh, he had stolen 10 field blankets to keep warm. Uh, Many of the donations actually come through clergy who are meeting with people as they die, and their conscience are so burdened as they're dying, they ask the clergy to to mend a wrong that they have done. Um, There is nothing like being zapped by the conscience. Now, I don't want to go too far into the conscience. You're, uh, today, we're going to look at the conscience. Uh, the conscience can be, in its uh, purest form, a, a wonderful gift of God. It, it's, it's the equivalent of 
of the ability to feel pain, to touch fire, to, to withdraw from pain. If aligned with the Spirit of God and His Word, that your conscience can guide you and protect you from many things. Uh, we know that uh, from the scriptures that your conscience can be seared. Um, you, yes, well, not everybody has a good conscience. Certainly there are, there are criminals and individuals, not just criminals, that are so used to violating certain areas that their, their conscience no longer is effective. The word uses, uh, the scriptures use the word searing, like a, like a, a branding iron, that your conscience can be so seared that it's no longer sensitive. You can have a, a, a sensitive conscience towards religious things that aren't necessarily in a line with the scriptures. I would never encourage somebody who has convictions or conscience not to do certain things, even if it's not in the scripture, to ask them to violate that because you don't want them getting used to uh, violating this, this, this gift that God has given. It, it's far better to take them to the word and allow the word of God to realign their conscience so that your conscience becomes aligned with his revelation. The longer you walk with Christ, the more time you spend in his word, the more time you'll find that the things you become convicted upon are are, are close to the things that he wants you to be convicted of. It's a beautiful gift. It is the innermost being of who we are. So we begin verse 1 here. This first word now, I can't get past this. I have to pause. This is, this is a, 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 a connecting word. It's always a good time. Sometimes you, some of us are very familiar with the Bible. Some of us are not. These numbers are chapters and verses. The, in the 1500s, a French guy sort of uh, put what we know as the, the references in the Scripture. Uh, they are a wonderful gift, but sometimes they... They make it hard for us to remember that, that the, the flow of thought is connected. And so when we read now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, we have to remind ourselves, what, what was he speaking of? And so if we, I have to go back to the previous page in verse 13 of chapter 8. We see that he comes after this great prophecy giving, given by Jeremiah that the old covenant, Jeremiah says, at a day future to him, it would be done away with and replaced by the new covenant. In verse 13, the author of Hebrews comments on this passage, and he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So we're on the subject of the tabernacle. We're on the subject of the, the old covenant. The, the author is going to continue through chapter 9, sort of, comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. But the heart of the matter in verse 1 deals with the regulations of divine worship. Everything we're looking about today relates to worship. How we as individuals relate to God. Throughout history, God has sort of changed how man has related to God. And so he tells us now the first covenant, that's the old covenant, had regulations of divine worship. So under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, there were regulations, there, there was liturgy, there, 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 there was an order 
to which they as a people were to worship God as God laid out to them. We see that the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and of the earthly sanctuary. So he's continuing this subject of the earthly sanctuary. Last week, I shared the, the, the shadow of, uh, of what they would have had in their mind, that, that, that Herod's temple is what they would have had in mind. But the author is not talking about the temple. He's talking about the tabernacle, um, the, the first place of worship that was given to Moses. Um, verses 2 through 5, a lot can be said about them. I'm going to guard myself from saying very much of anything because at the very end of verse 5 we read, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. If you open up any commentary, they're going to go on for pages and pages and pages explaining um, every last detail of the, of the contents that he is talking about. I'm going to spare us of verses 2 through 5, and I'm going to take us to, we're going to sort of be transported to the tabernacle, um, and I'm going to explain some of the things that are there just sort of in bigger picture or bigger context. I love the picture behind me. Um, it's a drawing of the nation of Israel and how the tabernacle would be, have been set up in the context of their lives. And today's paper and, and the news all the time, there's, there's talk of refugees, right? You, you can't really avoid um, the situation in Syria, in Iraq, um, the displacement of, of many, many peoples because of war, of terrorism. Um, they're, they're, they're fleeing their homelands. I, I believe it was on the, the page of uh, today's paper, the front page. I read the paper kind of out of order, so I, I didn't get it first thing, but I, I feel like it was on the front page. And it was talking about, uh, uh, as much as they're doing, the, the level of care in these displacement camps are really, really poor. And they're trying to make it better. And the reason I bring this up is because the people of Israel, at the time of the Mosaic Law, they, they were essentially a displaced people. They um, they were refugees in large part. Uh, if we're going to be really honest, they were more like probably animals than a society. You see that they were in slavery for many, 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 many years. Slaves don't make up their own decisions. They don't operate as a community. There's no, they're essentially animals. And so they, as Moses led them out of slavery into the desert, God spoke to Moses and gave him the law. And we look at the law and we say, oh, there's 613 commandments, and some of the commandments are just silly. But if you've never operated as a culture, as a society, the genius of, of, of the Mosaic law was beautiful. And so this picture shows this people who have never operated as a people, it shows their community under the Mosaic system. I'm not going to go into great detail, but in the center you see the tabernacle about the size of a football field. American football, not uh, the real football. Um, around it, they were in various camps based on their tribes. At the center of their life was the tabernacle where the worship of Yahweh happened. So we're going to go to the next slide and sort of zoom in on the tabernacle. You can see there's the American football field up there. There's a lowercase, kind of everything set up. What verse, uh, those first five verses that he says, we're not going to talk in great detail. 
he lays out a series of things. The, there would be an outer courtyard. There would be an entrance right here. The flow of worship happened from out here. You, they would make their way in from here. The priest would take over, move their way into the tabernacle. Just this spot is the tabernacle. Uh, it's a tent with sort of two rooms. Not sort of. It is a tent with two rooms. So there's an entrance here, there's an entrance here, and then there's another entrance there. The whole system was designed to show the barrier that existed between humans and God. The whole system was about worship. As we zoom in a little bit to the next slide, we're going to go into the tabernacle. You see kind of maybe this guy's the high priest here. Um, There's a veil on the outside. It's identical to this veil, except this one has more intricate uh, details on it. Um, The various items within the holy place, verses 2 through 5, explain these two compartments, that this is the holy place. And then this is the Holy of Holies. The, uh, this is where the presence of God actually dwelt. Uh, without going into much detail, I do want to point out a, uh, something that has to be dealt with, with the placement of, of Hebrews and, and the, uh, what is said here. So in verse 4, you'll read about uh, the, the, uh, the table of incense. Or, uh, and, and so in this picture... The table of incense is located here within the holy location. But if you were to read verse 4 and you were to examine it in context, what it appears that the author is saying is that this item is actually inside of the curtain. This, this could be a huge one if you just do a surface reading and you're contrasting with Exodus and you say, oh, this is, the author of Hebrews is like really messed up. He doesn't know what he's talking about because that's like, it's like Tabernacle 101, like knowing where the few pieces of furniture go to say that it's inside. That's ridiculous. The, the, the table of incense was not on the inside. It was on the outside. Um, it's, it's, it's really easily resolved. The, the, the author of, of Hebrews is a scholar of the Old Testament. This, the mind of this guy is amazing. Um, the reason that he places it inside of the tabernacle, I don't think in his mind he actually placed it inside of the holiest of holies, but its function was for inside of the holiest of holies because it was, it, you know, it was incense, smoke. Smoke once a year, they would light it up, and its purpose was to flow into the holiest of holies and to be a fragrant offering to the Lord. And it was reported that when they did this, or I would say, uh, not reported, reported is the wrong word. It's, it's, it's suspected. Um, a theory is that when it was functioning, they would pull the curtain around it so that the smoke could access the holiest of holies with, uh, with ease. Um, to me, the best illustration is if this stage was the holiest of holies, which it is not, and you guys were in the holy location, if there was a, a thing here, and I was describing, how is our church set up? I would say, oh, and we have a projector on the stage. Now, the reality is, do we have a projector on the stage? No, absolutely not. The projector's up there in the holy. In the, but where's its function? Its function is actually up on this wall. And so that's kind of the idea about that small little point. If you happen to go home and you're reading your commentaries and you're like, hey, what's the problem here? Like, what's going on? Okay, but we're going to move on because he says... 
But of these things we can't speak now in detail. So, so he lays out the tabernacle. The, the, the readers would understand this. He then says in verse 6, describing the flow, remember the context, the purpose of this is worship. Verse 1, we see uh, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. So there, there are regulations laid out by God of how the people were to worship God. So now we're getting into the actual function of these regulations. Verse 6, now when these things had been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle. That's the first room. The priest could go in there, free access. We would have no access to this location. This was not for the worshipers. The priest would go on behalf of the worshipers to fulfill the function of worship. See, they were continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing what? Divine worship. But into the second, so now we're looking at the holiest of holies, that second veil, there was a barrier. This is where the presence of God resided. But into the second, verse 7, only the high priest enters once a year on the Day of Atonement, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. I see that and I go, oh man, just for the sins committed in ignorance, I, I have enough concerns about the ones that I willingly know about, let alone like... Uh. So we're told that the high priest, once a year goes in there, what's not said in the text, so if that's the high priest up there, I could have found a better picture showing the regality of their garb. The, the high priest was set apart, the other ones. He had all of his glory, all of his majesty. But we're told that when he entered into the holiest of holies once a year, you almost get the image that he had like a bucket of blood. We're told that he takes off all of his good garbs and he has essentially like a white sheet. And there's this picture of when he enters in there, there's like fear and trembling like, here is a sacrifice. This is a atonement. This is this is an offering for my sin, for the sins of the people that they did in ignorance. We tried to get all the other ones, but we understand their sins that we don't even know about because we're not a holy people. I'm not coming in here on any pretense, God. I'm the high priest, but I'm coming in just in this white robe, trying to be as cleansed as possible, showing humility that the presence of God was. If we were to access or anybody was to access, you would be melted like candle in a raging fire because the presence of God is so holy. We don't have it in scripture, but there's sort of tradition that says that the high priest on this one day when he did it, they would tie a rope to him in case he actually was killed by the presence of God, that they wouldn't have to go in and rescue him. They could just pull his body out by the rope. Let's figure out where we are here. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, verse 7, without take, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that, by the, that the way into the holy place, the holiest of holies, has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. 
So putting that into layman's terms, what the author is saying, that as long as this tabernacle is in place, as long as this system is up and running, there's a barrier to God. Access to God is not possible because as long as this system is in place, this whole system from the entering into the courtyard, there's an there's, there's a area that you could access there. There was a barrier that you weren't allowed to go in there. Somebody else, your representative, would have to go in your place to the holy place. And even then, they didn't have access to where the very point of God is. And so he says, as long as this system is in place, you don't have access to God. The New Living Translation, I like how it's worded. It says, by these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic system, was excellent in external things. It focused on the outside. Its, its, its form of worship could only go skin deep. It could not penetrate into the, the deepest part of the individual. You were restricted from your access to God. You were reminded of this every step of the way and over and over and over again. Halfway through verse 9, he's beginning to expand on this point, the shortcoming, the, the failure of the old covenant. What he already has called useless, that it, the, the old covenant cannot save you. It can't bridge that gap that you have between you and God. He says in the second part of verse 9, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are only, are off, excuse me, gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So the idea of conscience, we're now speaking of the innermost being. He, can, he uh, continues, he says, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He said, this whole system focused on the outside. That all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings... The law cannot cleanse you. It cannot give you a perfect conscience. You're limited. You're guilty still before God. No matter how many offerings, no matter how many sacrifices, no matter how often you go through this, it will always fall short and that you will always be condemned by God within your conscience and your innermost being because you are a sinner and God is holy. And all the law can do is remind you of that truth. And I want to point out again that this is, a, this is the third time that word in the Greek has appeared, worship. Verse 1, we see the Old Covenant has regulations. This is the book on how you do worship. Verse 6, we see that the priest performed the act of divine worship on behalf of the people. Now in verse 9, we see that the worshiper, the person who's bringing the sacrifices to the priest, to perform the act of worship, we, we are told that this regulation of worship falls short every time and that it only cleanses the external. And it did a really good job of this. But it never touched the inward man. Or I should say, its specialty was not touching the inward man. I'm not saying, like, cer- certainly it had the capacity. We see in the Psalms that the inward man could be touched But the specialty of the Mosaic system was never to touch the inward man. It was to point you to the Messiah, to show you your need of a Savior. I'm realizing in our house these days, our budget um, is increasing in one area. The Band-Aid area 
that mention of softball, Gideon had a fantastic slide at the last softball game. He unfortunately took his slide about 40 feet shy of first base, and he got a pretty awesome raspberry and some other nicks on his knee, and we had resupplied our Band-Aid stash from Costco, and I I kind of forgot about this the next day, and I, I see uh, evidence of a Band-Aid explosion. You know, for every one Band-Aid, there's like the two strips on the back of the Band-Aid, and then there's the outer wrapper, and there's two strips there. So every one Band-Aid produces four little pieces of paper. And so I see this pile of like Band-Aid wrappers. I'm like, what? What did the boys do this time? And so I go find Gideon, and on his leg, he must have had about 20 Band-Aids. Like any little red spot, he had a Band-Aid on it. I said, what's going on, buddy? He's like, baseball, I had that awesome slide, but man, I got some owies. I'm like, you good now that the Band-Aid's there? He's like, I'm doing great. The Band-Aid fixed everything. So... So I've learned at this stage in their life, as long as it's minor, we can give the owie a kiss and put a Band-Aid on it. Even if you can't see the owie, it makes it all better. But what the author here in Hebrews is sort of alluding to is what you need spiritually is heart surgery. And all the Old Testament law was doing was putting a Band-Aid over your need. It's like medicine going back a couple hundred years. You know, we pray for Larry. I'm... The fact that we live when we do, we have so much to be grateful for uh, medical-wise. You know, reading books and watching movies of the old time, you know, a couple hundred years ago, a person would be sick. The the doctor would sort of have to look externally, make their best guess on what was going on with you. People died over simple things today. Contrasted with modern medicine, you know, now now you have a complaint. You don't feel good. What, what do they do? Go see the vampire. They're going to take your blood and urine. We're going to look microscopically at what's going on on the inside. And it's crazy. They can, they can look at your blood. They can analyze everything. They're like, hey, we think that your kidneys aren't functioning right. We think you might have a liver problem or you might have a fill-in-the-blank problem. But your blood, the inside, is realizing that there's something else going on. And so now what we need to do is we need to have a CT scan so we can take a picture of your insides. It's fascinating. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, what is available now is that there is a cleansing available that deals with the insides, not just the outsides. The very end of verse 10, which we covered, or really verse 10, he says, these things, the old covenant, it dealt with It dealt with external things, food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a reformation. Something would change. Jeremiah talked about it previously that this, there would come a time when the old would be done away with and that the new covenant would come. This is verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So now he's going from the earthly tabernacle to the heavenly tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and though, and through the not through the blood of goats and cows, but through his own blood, 
He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, if you'll turn with me back to what we covered last week, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, this is very similar language. In chapter 8, he tells us, we suffered through, I don't want to say suffered through, it's just the Bible, we had to work really hard to get through Melchizedek. The foundation that was laid, and through all of that rough, you know, just there was some rough territory. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat. It is finished at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Nowhere in this tabernacle picture will you see any chairs. But the tabernacle in heaven, Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. The work is done. Verse 2 says, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. You can go back to Hebrews chapter 9. So this, this whole time, the author is saying, this picture of the tabernacle, this, this was a, a pattern, this was a copy, this is a shadow of the true one that God gave to Moses. To, you create this. This is a, a tiny replica of the true one. You have a high priest in this fake one, or this shadow of one. He doesn't call it uh, fake, he doesn't say. But, but Christ is the true high priest, and he is in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. These two tabernacles are contrasted. He says this one that Christ is in, it's not made by human hands. This one behind me, made by human hands. This one behind me, they could enter in through the blood of goats and calves. The one that Christ entered into, the true one, he entered by his own blood. We're told that it was once and for all. This one they did continually over and over and over. It never ended. Because the the sacrifices that were there were simply a covering up, not a dealing with. And he says that what he achieved was eternal redemption. And where he's going is he's going to begin to explain, or he's going to say the, the, the point of what Jesus did is it allowed for a cleansing that goes to the, the innermost being of who you are. It's where eternal redemption. This is something that uh, religion can't do. This is something that psychology can't do. Uh, in Tim Keller's book, uh, Making Sense of God, he shares a story about a lady, uh, actually a teacher. Her name was Rebecca uh, Pippert. And so she had the opportunity to audit, audit a couple uh, psychology classes at Harvard, um, some graduate-level courses at Harvard University, one of which was systems of counseling. At one point, the professor pre- presented a case study in which therapeutic methods were used to help a man uncover a deep hostility and anger towards his mother. This helped the client understand himself in new ways, is what the professor tells the class. So this lady, uh, she asked the professor how he would have responded if the man had had asked for help to forgive her. The professor responded that forgiveness was a concept that assumed moral responsibility and many other things that scientific psychology could not speak to. Don't force your values about forgiveness onto the patient, he argued. When some of the students responded with dismay, the professor tried to relieve the tension with some humor. If you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. However, Pippard observes, the truth is, 
We are looking for a changed heart. Secular reason all by itself cannot give us a basis for a deep and powerful message of forgiveness and redemption. The author of Hebrews is saying that the old covenant couldn't provide this, but the new covenant can. In verse 13, he says, for if, and he's saying this in a positive way, the new American language, the new American standard can be sort of like a broken. So before I read this, what he's saying is, in the old system, the sacrifice of, of, of goats and bulls could provide an external covering. It, it, it could cleanse the flesh sort of externally in a temporary way, but it fell short of what Christ could do. So he writes, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctify the cleansing of, of flesh, how much more? How much more greater is the sacrifice of Christ? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? This is huge. What the, what the, old, what the old covenant couldn't do, the new covenant with Christ could do. That this cleansing deep within. I think I, I hate taking physicals. Like I, I recently, a few months ago, I had to undergo some uh, some tests. It was around Western days. And it was for insurance. You know, will they insure you? And so they, they ask you a bunch of questions. The, the questions are always easy. I know there's always a trick one, but because, you know, you start going through, do you have this? No. No. What is that? No, I don't have that. Hope I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that. No, no, no. And you start going, and then all of them are, are you alive? Ha <laughs> ha, got it. It's the, yes, I am alive. No, 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 no. And as you go all through it, you submit it, you feel great. I'm a, I'm a healthy specimen. They say, well, we're sending a nurse to your house to take blood, urine, take all your vitals just to verify. And I get so nervous for these things. I like hate tests. Yeah, and so Anna always teases me. She's like, Gunnar, just relax. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm eating broccoli for the next month. It's like I have three weeks. I'm eating broccoli, water, zero coffee. I'm just going to start running so that I can ace this test. She's like, I don't think it works like that. I'm like, Internet says it can work like this. And so we're, 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 do, we're doing it. And it's like terrifying waiting for the results because I know they're looking within me. It reminds me of, when I, leaving the military, became a chaplain with the sheriff's department and they put me on my first lie detector test. Horrifying. The lie detector test is really, I think, what's being addressed here because God can penetrate into your innermost being. So the sheriff's department, they put me in this gray room, they jam on the, like, I like it cold. But this was like an ice box, Like, not a pitcher in the room. And they jammed it just so low, and this lady comes in, and she starts asking me questions. And I'm answering the questions as honestly as I can, but my, like, sensitive conscience, I'm, like, confessing. See, I'm, they're not asking me about God's standard, but I'm kind of, like, my conviction is set to God's standard. So I'm as guilty as all can be for all sorts of things. And she says, I'm like, oh, I forgot one thing. I'm like, you know, the, the 90s were a rough decade for me. I just remembered something else, like, and I tell her this, and so she goes back to analyze all the tests, and she comes back, and she said, you, you failed a couple of areas. I'm like, I know, I'm as guilty as can be, but it's by the blood of Jesus. I'm, I'm innocent. 
And she's like, oh, well, with the sheriff's department, we need to talk about a couple things. And she says, now, this one area you're really, you're really failing on is it says, have you ever stolen anything? Like from your work, a pencil or stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like, it asked, you asked me if I've stolen a, like anything from my place of employment, like a pen. I was a Navy SEAL. We had all kinds of budget. My boss would send me to REI and say, you got to spend $2,000, each of us, just on all personal gear. Like I have in my closet brand new boots from the government. I got knives and all sorts of stuff. Like I don't know if it's stealing, but I was told I had to do this or we wouldn't get the budget next year. She's like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like, okay, but according to God, that's like, she's like, we're not talking about God here. So she goes out and she kind of comes back. She's like, other than anything, you know, I passed finally when she got through the details. And the point of all of this is you can't hide anything from God. You can put on an exterior. You can really work on your image. You can make everybody look like, oh, I'm perfect, hunky-dory Christian, and I've got it all together. God sees deep within. God cares about your innermost being. And it's your innermost being, it's that place that creates the barrier for you to worship him. You think, God, what are you talking about? Look at this. He says, the question that he asks is, how much more can Christ cleanse you? Christ's cleansing, his sacrifice, is so thorough that it can cleanse your conscience from dead works. And then he says to serve the living God. Now, it's unfortunate. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not criticizing translators. These guys that put together the modern translations that we have are guys that know the language better and backwards. But, but most of the, the the, virtually all of the modern translations take this last phrase and they say that God cleanses you and, and the purpose is that you can serve him. And I think by doing that, it misses, a, it misses a major theme in this section, which I've told you multiple times. The New Living Translation and the Net Bible got it. But that word serve is actually worship. It's the same word that's found in verse 1. The first covenant had regulations of divine worship. Verse 6, priests often enter into the outer tabernacle performing divine worship. Verse 9, the shortcoming of the Old Covenant is that it cannot cleanse your conscience or it can't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, so it falls short. Then we come to verse 14, after all of these things, how much more the blood of Christ the blood of Christ cleanses you totally, completely. The, the deeper, the deepest, most intimate places of your heart, in your conscience, the blood of Christ can cleanse you there to worship the living God. Changes everything. This is, gives me goosebumps. See, this whole system showed us that we can't truly worship God because of our sin. And all this system did was show you your failure, your sin, and it would, it would leave you clean on the outside, but your inside, which if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's where our sin, that's, that's the worst part of us. So we're still dirty and we're, it's this, this religion, it's faking it. But under this new covenant, under Christ, when you come to him, his work on the cross was sufficient. Through him, We've been brought near to God, which the author of Hebrews has already said. 
through him, our conscience is clean. It was sufficient. And now that we've been cleansed, we now have the ability to do what we were created to do. That's worship. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief aim of man? And the answer is, the chief aim of man is to bring glory to God. And to, in, let me just read it as, uh, before I butcher it like any other thing else I do. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's worship. We were created to worship God. Our sin puts a barrier there. And so we worship all kinds of things. But Christ came to cleanse us, so now we have access to worship him, to do what we were created to do. As I close, there's an old story. It's told by a lot of people. I didn't actually talk to the guy. I'm sure the guy's dead and gone. I don't know who it is. But there was an evangelist that used to do tent revivals. And leaving one town after a weekend of uh, uh, sharing the gospel in this, this tent revival, he was breaking down his tent. story goes, as he's packing everything up, a young man comes to him and says, uh, I'm sorry I missed everything this weekend, but I need to know what, what do I need to do to get saved? The evangelist, while he's still working on his tent, packing everything up, he's like, I'm sorry, you're too late. And the guy says, what do you mean I'm too late? You mean because I missed the revival, it's too late for me? He's like, no, you're too late because there's nothing for you to do. Jesus did it all for you. All you have to do is believe. And unfortunately, we so often try to save ourselves. We try to cleanse our conscience by good works. We, For those of us who are saved, I'm guilty of it, not, not believing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient enough. And so I, while I cognitively know that Jesus has forgiven me, I still have held myself guilty, reducing his work on the cross. And so today... As the author of Hebrews said back in chapter 3, verse 15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond to him. He wants relationship. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to walk closely with him. As I look at this passage, the one thing that, that has been on my mind this week is that God cares about the inside. In the Old Testament, there's a passage that talks about that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the inside. God cares most about the inside. I don't think that the outside is, I'm not saying that the outside isn't important. But what we want is our outside, our outside, our actions should flow from what's happened within us. So God wants us to tend the garden of our heart, to tend the garden of our deepest place. If you've never received Christ as Savior, all you need to do is believe. If you've believed in Christ, what he wants us to do is to get to know him. And we do that through his words, spending time with him, praying, confessing our sin as it comes to mind, and worshiping him because he has enabled us to do that. We're going to end with a song today, and it's called The Heart of Worship by Matt Redman. I'm going to butcher the story, but so as long as you don't go to the internet and Google it, I'll be okay. Um, but the story goes something like Matt Redman came in this place where like doing these concerts and all of this worship, he was so, like the externals were getting to him. And I don't know what the deal is, but I, I think he stopped like doing worship and stopped writing songs and stopped playing music for like six months just to focus on God. 
It was a fast of sorts. And at the end of the fast, this song sort of bubbled up within him that we're going to sing. And, and my prayer is that we would come back to the heart of worship. And Father, we thank you that Christ has provided a way for us to truly worship you. The old covenant demonstrated the the distance that we have with you. Religion, the law, none of these things can save us. They can just show us our need of a Savior. Father, we can only see um, on others the outside, but we can see our hearts. So, Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to honestly evaluate who we are in our innermost being. There are people who have never received Christ. Lord, I pray that your voice would speak to them, that they would respond to your invitation. They would see that Christ died for them, that his death was sufficient in pain for the sins that they have. And Father, for those of us who have received Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would uh, allow us to experience this cleansing of conscience. For many of us, the sins of our past linger with us. Your word tells us that we've been set free, that we've been cleansed, and yet we still force ourselves to stay in that place of guilt and shame and sorrow and regret and remorse. I pray that you would help each of us to know, to experience that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for all of our sins and that through faith in him, we've been washed white as snow. Father, I pray that you would help us to worship you as you created us to do. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.